So we drive an old minivan. It's it just turned 10 years old this year, our white Toyota Sienna. Love that van. We have taken that van everywhere. We've crammed it with our camping stuff. We've put the canoes on it. We've transported this and that and hauled everything. It's been a very good minivan for us. And I love minivans in general. This is the third minivan I've owned. I had a minivan before I was even married, before I had children. I was dating Clancy, and I would show up in, the, in a minivan that my aunt gave me because it wasn't cool enough for her, but it was mine. It had the, the Plymouth Voyager with the wood paneling. Loved that van, too. Anyway, uh, our current van is a little bit beat up. It had been kind of dented, and I put too many bicycles on the back of it one time and left a pretty good dent and some scrapes. And then the one side was all rusted out. And so, um, so a good thing happened. My, my wife was in a car accident. It's good because nobody was injured, but also fixed. They, they repaired the whole back of the van. Like it's brand new. So because of that, we said, look, the back of the van is all fixed. Let's, let's, re- let's fix the rust on the side. So we took it to the body shop, and they had to get a whole new door, the sliding door panel. They got a whole new one. They found it out in western Massachusetts. They brought it in. It didn't quite match, so they had to paint the whole side. And when they did it, it was like it was brand new. The thing was gorgeous. So what do you do when your minivan is all pristine again? You take your wife on a date. So, I, I, I get Clancy, we go down to see a laser show at the um, planetarium at the Museum of Science, and we had a great time, and we're leaving the parking garage, and the person who's at the gate, you're supposed to pay for your parking before you leave, and this person didn't realize that, and they couldn't figure out the credit card or the machine, and all the traffic's backed up, and everybody's beeping and angry and just waiting, and I notice that to the right, there's another gate that wasn't obvious that I could sneak out. And the guy in front of me couldn't make the angle, but I could. I had just enough room to to sneak by and get to that gate and unclog this terrible traffic jam because of this parking offender person. I thought I had enough space. It was very, very close. And And I'm pulling around, and I hear this... The whole side that was just painted, all now scraped indented. You've had this experience too in one way or another. You've put on a clean shirt for a very important meeting at work and then coffee right down the front. Or uh, you've just finished paying off your, your bills, the last of the bills were paid and then boom, an unexpected expense comes. Now you got to start over. Or you get a new job because your old job, there was so much instability in the company, had been bought and sold and threats of layoffs, and you finally get a new job in a stable company, and then a week later, you get acquired. And they're talking about consolidating and people losing jobs, and it's just, you think you get the fresh start, and then all of a sudden, the same old problems. Here in our text, the people of Israel... They get a whole new start. They had lived in the promised land and they had lived under the leaders and the laws that God had given them, but they broke the laws. They had sinned greatly. And because of that, God sent a foreign nation to conquer them and displace them into exile. But because of God's grace, he's calling his people to return from exile back to their land in Judah and Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city and rebuild their way of life under his law and under the leaders that God had provided for them. But as soon as they get back, we have this leader named Ezra. We looked at 
his story of returning to the city last week. He's beginning his ministry, and his ministry was a ministry of reestablishing God's law among his people. And the people went to Ezra and said, Oh, yeah, remember that part of the law where we're not supposed to marry the people who live around this region? We're not supposed to marry, intermarry with these Canaanites? Yeah, some of the exiles have been intermarrying them and they've made children, and some of the leaders, including some of the priests, have intermarried, and we've broken this law. And Ezra, this was the moment when they were supposed to have the clean start. They could finally live faithfully to their God. And Ezra hears this news, and he just he, he starts pulling his hair and his beard, and he's so upset, he tears his clothes, and he sits down dejected just sitting down appalled at the condition of the the people. So I want to do three things with this. Focus on three things. One is I want to give a warning. I like giving warnings this season. I don't know why, but we're going to give you a warning. Secondly, I want to look at how Ezra responded to what happened and what we can learn from that. And thirdly, I want to consider how do we respond to this? Because it's actually a, a difficult passage for us that we'll see as we as we get into that so um, let's pray father we thank you for your word we thank you that it is living and active and sharp sharper than any sword and it cuts right to our souls these ancient words and these ancient people um, this is still your word to us today lord so we pray that you would help us to see what you desire for us to learn and to meditate on this morning. So we pray that you would be our teacher and that you'd be glorified in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, the warning. The, the, the warning is this. This is not a, a prohibition against interracial marriage or mixed ethnic marriages. Actually, in the Bible, an interracial or mixed ethnic marriage is a beautiful thing. Um, however, through the years, I mean, in our country, interracial marriage was illegal until the late 1960s when the Supreme Court um, made a decision. In 16 states, it was illegal in 1967 in some of your lifetimes. Uh, so it wasn't all that long ago. Yet I believe that, the, that it's a beautiful thing. And I would commend you, if you're interested in learning more about this, a book by Pastor John Piper called Bloodlines, I think is a helpful contribution uh, to this. He wrote a whole chapter on interracial marriage. And he, he has a very strong theological grounding to his work. So the book's about 10 years old, but still very helpful uh, contribution to the conversation. And it's a book about um, race and um, and about prejudice and racial strife and these types of issues. So it's a great book, but, and I'm basically following his argument. But his argument is this. He said, look, there's really only one human race that we're all descendants of Adam and Eve, made in the image of God, that we are one people. And as, as Acts 17 says, from one man, God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. So all of the beautiful cultural and ethnic diversity that we see in our world, that God has allowed that through humans, one human race created in his image. So when we start to try to define things like race, we realize that the lines between people are fuzzy. 
There's not clean uh, breaks and categories, even if you base it on physiological type things or geographic and you go back in history enough, you realize, whoa, we're more, probably more related than, than, um, than we realize when we talk about these things. And it's not that race or ethnicity is unimportant. It's profoundly important in many ways, but the point is it's much more of a social construct than a theological construct. This is, again, one humanity created in the image of God. That's the theological construct. The Bible, however, does speak against the marriage, the intermarriage between believers and unbelievers, but not between races or ethnic groups. So we see, uh, say somebody like Moses, he married a Midianite woman, but she worshiped the one true God, and he was faithful to the God of Israel. And God gave this law, including the prohibition against marriages with the Canaanite people, through Moses, who had married a foreign woman. There was, during the time of the judges of Israel, there was a man named Boaz who married a Moabite woman, a Moabitess, named Ruth. And she becomes... um, Ruth and Boaz are part of the genealogy of Jesus. So Jesus' bloodline includes this woman who was a Moabite. And Moabites are one of the groups that's specifically mentioned in this text. But she worshipped the one true God. It wasn't about her ethnicity. It was, uh, about, it's about worship. You see, in Jesus Christ, ethnic and social differences are not obstacles to deep, meaningful, personal relationships, including marriage. Colossians 3 says, in the church there is, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And as Christ is in us, we are united to people in ways that cross over boundaries that would otherwise separate us. So in Ezra's day, the problem wasn't race or ethnicity, the problem was about purity. The problem was about worship. In our text today, in verse 11, it says, The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they filled it with impurity from one end to the other. It wasn't ethnicity, it was impurity. They, had, they worshipped false gods. They did not worship the God of Israel. They, and they had the ways that they worshipped were really, there were some really disgusting practices. Child sacrifice and, and, and other terrible things that these people practiced in the name of their gods. And the God of Israel says, you're not to connect with them. If you join with them, you will be inclined to worship like them. If you marry them, you're you're essentially marrying into their systems of how they worship. And I have called you to be a special people. I have called you as a nation out of all the nations of the world to be holy and pure. Therefore, do not, there is a great danger in intermarrying with these people who are very impure in their way of life. That is the, the problem. And you know, God says, you're to worship me alone. That is the, the first commandment. To love God and to worship him alone. So this is all about worship. And so when the Israelites first entered the promised land, there was a prohibition against these marriages in their law. But they intermarried. You should read the story of King Solomon and his foreign wives. And then he accommodates all this false worship. And it's really a downhill path from there. 
So they end up in exile. So they return from exile. This prohibition against these marriages still exists. And the people right away start intermarrying. And the same problems of this restart of this return from exile um, with Ezra and his leadership, same problems. So what was Ezra's response? Let's take a look. And I'm going to read some quotes from, from this passage. His, his response is repentance. He just repented of the sin of these people. He said in, in verses 6 and 7, he's, he's, he just kind of owns the sin. He says, I'm too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. He said, our, the level of our sin and guilt is just through the roof right now. But he also appeals to God's grace. Ezra prayed this. He said, but now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. So we were cast out because of our sin, but there is a, a remnant, a faithful remainder that God has allowed to come back and to stand before him and how gracious God is to even provide forgiveness that even some could return. And then in verse 10 and following, he, he talks about, but we've sinned again. He says in verse 10, now our God, our, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands. And he goes as far to say, God could just wipe us out for this. He says, would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving no remnant or survivor? So this time, maybe God's grace has, maybe he's uh, used up all his grace, and, and we just deserve that, that none should survive this. This is just straight up repentance. No excuses. Um, no minimizing the problem. He just owns it. But we know in scripture that repentance is not just admitting guilt. Repentance is, is not just um, trusting God's grace, which is your only hope at that point, which it is. But it also is a turning away from the sin. Repentance, literally, the word means to turn. So turning away from the sin. So what did they do? So the leaders got together and they made a decision. They said, we're going to annul all these marriages. This is going to be, we're going to divorce all these foreign wives and the children. And they need to be sent away from our people. Now that sounds harsh. Because it is harsh. We're to believe that these people loved their spouses. And certainly we're to believe they would have loved their children. And yet, because the marriages were illegal... They said, we're going to end them and send these people away. And the Bible says nothing about what happens to them, to these women, these foreign women who are now sent away back to their homelands or back to their tribes. We don't know if they were given any special consideration or treatment. We know nothing. They just have to leave. That's heavy. So the question is, how do you feel about this? Because the way you feel about how they reacted is going to tell you something about what you believe about God and what you believe about his holiness. If you say, look, foreign marriages, what's the big deal? Why did they have to separate these families? Why did they have to separate these people? Couldn't they just have you know, made it work? But if we believe God is perfectly holy, and that when he's trying to call a people to be holy and they are to be completely pure, you cannot intermingle what is good and what is evil. 
that it needs to be cut off. They, they made this decision. They felt the only way to get past this is to completely separate, completely cut off. So, so they did. They sent these people away. They made a list in the book of Ezra of all the people who had committed this sin, and they sent the spouses away. And that's the end of the book. That's it. It ends right there. This is wild. So what are we to do with this? It just ends abruptly right there. So let's think about our response here. What is our response to this? First of all, holiness, the holiness of God is a big deal. And therefore, sin is also very serious. This story shows us that the the greatest problem for these people, to be God's people, was not about getting attacked by the people around them. The biggest problem was their own sinful hearts that wanted something that God said is forbidden. It was their own sin was the biggest threat to their way of life. And Jesus reiterated this. He, he, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, Jesus said, look, don't be afraid of people who can kill you. Because the worst they can do is kill your body. But God holds your soul. If you want to fear someone, fear the one who, when your body is destroyed, can, can destroy your soul in hell. He's the one you need to worry about. The, the sinful human heart needs to be forgiven and cleansed to be present with the holy God. And the, the greatest threat to our lives is our own sin. And here it was a great sin of forsaking God to pursue a person who God said, do not pursue that person. God made that person. But that person cannot replace God. That person cannot stand in God's place. But people were forsaking the God who made them for people. And again, it wasn't, the issue isn't that they were foreign people, but it was foreign gods that were coming into the system, chasing after something that is not the God of heaven. And there's all kind, today there's all kinds of false gods that we could run after. The gods of uh, success, the gods of power and money, popularity, the god of being accepted. We, we could chase those things and try to find them somewhere other than the God of heaven who offers us all of these things. And Jesus taught his followers, he said, do not be polluted by the world around you. His, his disciple John wrote this in a letter, he, 1 John chapter 2. He said, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires will pass away. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So don't be tempted by the things around you. Don't desire what the world has. Do not be polluted by it. Your desire should be to the God who gives you life and eternal life. So what do we do? We repent. Just as Ezra had to repent and the people of his generation and the people of every generation. In the Old Testament, you know, King David, this great king, this man after God's heart, he had to repent of very serious sin. In the New Testament, Peter, the rock on which Jesus was to build his church, had to repent of his sin in denying Jesus. And we too have the opportunity to to notice in our own hearts where we have fallen short and we repent. We turn from our sin to receive his grace.
We, this, is, this is where we need to be serious about God's holiness and our sinfulness. And these things just can't, it's not just okay, we can somehow figure it out. We need to turn and get rid of all of those things. So we repent of sins of materialism, sins of pride, sins of fear, sins of unforgiveness, sins of lust, of lying, of anger, of, of unbelief, of just not trusting God, or of putting anything before God. Any sin in our life, we must completely turn from it. And we turn to God and we receive forgiveness. We receive his grace. And it's possible because God does not treat us as our sins deserve. Just as Ezra said, God doesn't, our sin is so high above our heads, but God, by his grace, has saved a remnant. God has, by his grace, our sins are very high, but God, by his grace, he saves us because Jesus took the punishment for us so that we can receive forgiveness. So that's what we do. And if the, our conclusion here, I'll pray. As God puts things on your heart, we repent. We turn to him and we receive his grace again. And we look at this story, we can kind of see ourselves like Ezra and the people of his day who needed to repent of their sin. But if you think about it, we're really, we, you and I are really like the foreign wives who were sent away. We're the impure ones who would pollute the, the good kingdom that God has established. We're the, we're the polluters. We're the ones who have chased the foreign gods. We should be sent away, but it's by God's grace that we're not just sent away, but that we are brought in. And it's a pure marriage. And actually, that's the image that the Bible uses to describe us, his people, that we are uh, a bride that was wayward who has been made pure. Ephesians chapter 5 describes it like this. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. We have been made pure to be a beautiful bride for Jesus. Let us pray. Father, you are a holy God and you have called us, your people, to be holy. To be a holy nation. We consider the absolute purity in which you've called us to live. In Ezra's day and in our day too. But Lord, we are not holy. We are not pure. So we repent. We appeal to your grace to cleanse us. So we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his purity and his perfect righteousness. We thank you that he died in our place to make us clean and pure, a beautiful bride. Help us to know whatever our sin, however we fall short, that your grace is sufficient to forgive, that your grace is sufficient to heal. Help us to receive your grace with hearts of faith. May this all be for your glory. And we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.